10 years ago, I shared a message that uh, I took weeks to think through and, and uh, uh, write, bef- uh, and, and I preached this message called <laughs> The Hills We Die On. And uh, it was just, you know, something that was real strong in my heart. What do we value more than anything else? What are the core values as a church and as a church family? What, what, what means the most to us? What, what are our non-negotiables? And so I, I preached that word 10 years ago. Now, through the years, I've had other pastors ask me to speak it in places. And then as new people have come into our church and our little brunches, I've shared it. But because our theme this year is fearless, and because our theme this year is creating a courage culture, it takes a courage culture to even know that you have a hill that you would die on. Yeah. And I just felt like at the beginning of the year, well, it's moving fast through the year already, but fairly close to the beginning of the year, I would like to go back and visit these hills that we courageously stand on and if, had, if we had to, die on. There just has to be some things in life more valuable than life. Amen. We don't, always, we don't fight every fight. Sometimes we move, and, but there are some fights that are just non-negotiable. And we have to have things in our life that are more important to us than our life. And then I think that's what makes our life meaningful yeah. and, and purposeful. So I want to talk today. I'm gonna, I took this message out, and I've actually almost rewritten the whole message, except for the five hills. But approaching them in light of what we've all been through lately... In, in light of where the world is now, the world was a different place 10 years ago when I wrote these words down. So, hills we die on. In warfare, the high ground is everything. It always has been. And in World War II, on the island of Iwo Jima, and we may have a, a picture of the island of Iwo Jima, uh, for about five or six weeks, The Marines landed on that island and experienced one of the most desperate and deadly battles in World War II. But on this island is this hill, and this is Mount Suribachi. It's the high ground. It's the high ground. And the Marines knew that if they were going to take Iwo Jima, and if they were going to have victory, they were going to have to take this high ground. And of course, they took it several times before they actually took it and were able to keep it. Because if you could control Mount Suribachi, if you could take that high ground, then you would win the rest of it. Now, we know that this hill is famous for a picture that Joe Rosenthal took after about a week into the fighting. Could we see the next photo, please? And that took place on Mount Suribachi. And that photo became one of the most iconic and famous photos during World War II of the Marines establishing the, 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 the ground, the high ground, which in about four weeks, Iwo Jima was taken. And during the Civil War, General Robert E. Lee was the amazing commander of the Southern Army, the Rebel Army, the South. But he was an incredible general. And General Robert E. Lee built his battle plans always around the high ground. And the war had been fought for a few years, and he had had victory after victory. But it all converged in Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. And he brought 75,000 troops into that area at Gettysburg. But the Union Army, the Blue Army, the Northern Army, was on the high ground at Gettysburg. 
And General Lee knew that if he was going to win that battle, which ended up becoming the turning point of the entire Civil War, that he, Robert, uh, Robert E. Lee, that he would have to take the high ground. And there was a particular hill, a small hill, to the left of where the army was called Little Round Top. That's the hill. It's just not, I mean, when you look at it, there's just not much to it. And actually, if you look at it from being on top, you would see it, that's not a very big hill. And yet that hill has become one of the most significant landmarks in United States history. Because on that hill was a colonel named Colonel Vincent. And the, 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 uh, if, go back to the other photo, please. Little, little round top, and then to the right of it was big round top. And across those hills was where the Union Army was. But this was the left flank. And so Colonel, uh, 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 his name was Strong Vincent. And thank you now for that next photo. And he, um, he, he, he knew the value of little round top. As small as it was, he knew that that could not be taken. It would be assaulted time and time and time again. But he sent this message to the general, uh, Chamberlain. He said, this, he's speaking of Little Round Top. He said, this is the left of the Union line. He said, you're to hold this ground at all costs. Is there anything in your life, in my life, that we would hold or hold on to at all costs? Because that's what we're talking about today. He said, you are to hold this ground at all costs. You are not to flee. You are not to flee. You are to fight. And if need be, die on this hill. And he was adamant about this. And so the battle began. And Colonel Strong, standing on Little Round Top, was shot in the throat. And as he fell, his men gathered around him and he gave his last command. And his last command was, don't give an inch. His last breath, his last gurgling sound that came out of his mouth, the last order he gave, do, do not, don't give an inch. Colonel Strong died on that hill, not giving an inch. It was assaulted several times, several times, several times, until finally the Union soldiers that were up there were out of ammo. But the rebel soldiers didn't know it. And as they were preparing for one more assault, the commander who'd stepped into place told his soldiers, mount bayonets, and they did a charge down. The enemy didn't know they were out of ammo, but they had no more ammo. They had bayonets, and they charged down that little hill. And that charge was so terrifying to the enemy that they were defeated, and uh, they, they never came back up. They had no more ammo, but they just charged with bayonets. Gettysburg was the turning point in the Civil War that eventually abolished slavery in the United States and established the United States of America under Abraham Lincoln. So down through the centuries, military commanders strategically have prized the high ground. They've weighed the cost of taking and holding a hill. Even ones they knew that if necessary, they would die on. And so, I've not titled these thoughts the cardinal core, core values of Imagination Church because to me it's more than that. These are the hills we die on. I could have called it that. I could have, you know, uh, said these are our five essentials or our five non-negotiables or our, 
our five immovables, but they just seem way more than that to me. And so I want to talk about the hills we die on as a church and as totally committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is the hill of prayer. Prayer. Prayer declares our utter dependency upon God. We are never going to be slick enough or sharp enough or polished enough or, 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 or talented enough or educated enough to build his house without his help and without his presence. Prayer. Prayer. Yes, we work. We, this team works. This is the best team in the, in the world. I love this team. I, I just, it's just so amazing. We work our heart out. But prayer reminds us. That he is so big and we are so little and we need him so much. This is not the work of man. This is the work of God. Jesus said, I will build my church. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. So here's the vine. He says, and you are the branches. And Jesus said, apart from me, the vine, he says, you can do nothing. And that's exactly true about you and me. The value that the vine is to the branch is the value that prayer is to the church. We value, we esteem, we hold dear. We see this as a, as a non-negotiable. This is an absolute essential for us as a church family, as leaders in this house. E.M. Bounds, I think, wrote 12 books on prayer. I think through the years, especially in my young years, I've read every one of his books, classics, on prayer. Ian Bounds says, he says, don't jump off buildings without parachutes. <laughs> he, Ian Bounds says, we can do nothing without prayer. All things can be done by importunate prayer. You know what importunate prayer is? That's prayer that doesn't stop. That's prayer that just keeps knocking and keeps asking. He says, prayer surmounts or removes all obstacles. It overcomes every resisting force. How many know we've had some of that in the, in the last few years? Every resisting force. And it gains the ends, it gains its ends in the face of in, invincible hindrances. That sounds like our two years that we've lived through. I'm telling you, the devil has no defense to a praying people. Ian Bounds also says this. Is that, is it? He says, yeah, prayer is of transcendent importance. He said, prayer is the mightiest agent to advance God's work. Don't you love that? Prayer, he says, only praying hearts and hands can do God's work. Prayer succeeds when all else fails. And one more quote by Ian Bounds. He said, prayer is our most formidable weapon, the thing which makes all else we do efficient. Prayer, how essential. We cannot not be a praying people and a praying church. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. The apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome, he said this in chapter 1 and verse 9. God knows how 
Often I pray for you day and night. I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all of my heart, telling others the good news about his son. The apostle is teaching those Romans by his example that this is a hill we die on. He told the Thessalonian church, he said, pray without ceasing. He told Timothy, his son in the Lord, in 2 Timothy 1.3, he said, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers day and night. Day and night. Wherever prayer is in your life right now, move it up. Wherever it is in your schedule right now, move it higher. Take it further. Because this is an absolute essential. We cannot be the church that Jesus wants us to be if we are not a praying church and a praying people. Prayer is essential. It's a non-negotiable. It's a hill we die on. Our second hill is the word. When John, who was the youngest follower of the 12 disciples, when John eventually penned his gospel, the gospel of John, the very first verse in the very first chapter, the very first words, here's what John said. This is how John introduces his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then 13 verses later, we get to verse 14, and he says, and the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what the word is. It's full of grace and truth. The word, the word is full of grace and truth. And then chapters later, John writes down a prayer that he heard Jesus pray. And John hears Jesus praying this prayer for you and for me. And here's what Jesus prays to his father. Sanctify them by your truth. He's talking about his followers. He's praying for his followers. What does it mean to sanctify them? Well, I've always understood that, that it means to set apart. Set apart. But literally, it means to consecrate and separate did you know that's what God wants you and me to be? Consecrated and separated. From what? From everything else. <laughs> Consecrated and separated in our life, in our thoughts, in, our, in the way we raise our kids. Consecrated and separated. So he says this, Jesus praises to his Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We're talking about his word is full of grace and truth. And Jesus said, your word is truth. We have been bombarded for months and months and months with facts, but his word is truth. It is truth. And then in John 6, 63, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. Spirit and life. Grace and truth. Spirit and life. Grace and truth. Spirit and life. Grace and truth. And then Peter, who lived with Jesus and died for Jesus, hung upside down on a cross because he would not deny what he had seen with his own eyes. Peter writes this in his epistle. He says, you have been born again. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. 
the eternal living word of God. I decree today that the eternal living word of God is a hill we die on. Grace and truth, spirit and life, eternal living word of God. We will not be moved off this hill. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we read this. For the word of God is living. That's what Peter was saying. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And, and this is why the world hates it so much, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It sees deep. It goes deep. Jesus said in Matthew 23 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. God's living and eternal word is a non-negotiable. His word conforms me to his image. God's word shapes me and makes me more like Jesus. And again, Paul writes to the Roman Christians. Imagine living in Rome at the center of the empire. Imagine the pressure on them as Christians living under the Roman emperor. Imagine the pressure of Roman philosophy and culture and lifestyle. And here these Christians are. And here's what Paul says to them in Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed. Don't be conformed to Rome, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. It's kind of confusing today. What is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Because culture says, well, this is good, and this is right, and this is legal, and this is okay, and this is fine, and it's kind of confusing. How do I know what the will of God is? Just because it's the will of man, just because it's the will of people, just because it's the will of politicians, just because it's, how do I know? How do I know what the will of God is? Well, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove or know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. How many know his will and his way is solid? It does not shift with a new vogue. Am I conformed by the world, by social media? Am I conformed by the world or am I transformed by the word? The New Living Translation reads this way. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. His word, in all of this confused life that we're in today, his word is our true north. Not current trends, not pop culture or political correctness. All of these things will pass away. They're like waves that come and go, but his word abides forever. We have a compass. As Christians, we have a compass. Now, we could see maybe on the screen uh, a compass. A compass is known. It's famous for its four cardinal points, north, 
south, east, and west. And a compass, if you have a compass in your hand, you can learn and, and, and know where you are and where it is you're supposed to go and how to get there. We as Christians have a compass, but it doesn't say north, south, east, and west. I have a compass for my life. It says Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It says Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I have a compass for my life. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I have a compass for my life. I don't have to be lost. I don't have to be confused. The epistles of Paul and Peter and James and Jude. I have a compass for my life. It's the word of God. The cardinal points of my life are directed by the word of God. Jesus said this. And he said this especially to you if you live along the Hawkesbury. In Matthew 7. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, the word, the word I speak, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, hearing and doing, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock And the rain descended and descended and descended for days and days and days. And the floods came and the winds blew. And they beat on that house, that home, that family, that marriage, that business, those kids. It beat on that house, but it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. What is the rock? Doing the sayings of Jesus. The house, the life, the marriage, the business, the mental health that is founded on doing the sayings of Jesus will not be floating down the river because of the storm and the foundation that it's on. Then he says, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house, his home, his family, his marriage, his life on the sand. The shifting and moving sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. We're talking about the hills that we die on. Hopefully, the hills that we live on. But if we had to, the hills we would die on. And that is prayer, and that is the word. Third hill for us is authenticity as opposed to hypocrisy and duplicity and insincerity. Being honest and being earnest. Socrates, the great philosopher, said the first key to greatness is to be, in reality, what we appear to be. Authenticity, genuine. Mother Teresa, God bless her, she said, honesty and transparency make you vulnerable. She said, be honest and transparent anyway. These things make us vulnerable. Vulnerable. You know, they kind of expose us on the inside. She said, but be honest and transparent 
anyway. Paul had this testimony to the Corinthians that he'd lived among and worked among. And Paul said this to the Corinthian Christians. He said, for our boast is this. This is 2 Corinthians 1.12. Our boast is this. It's the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That we behaved when we lived among you, when we preached the gospel, when we led you. We did it, he said, with simplicity and godly sincerity. Simplicity and godly sincerity. Not pretending and posing. Do you know how many pages are available to you right now to write something, to show something that would allow you to kind of lean into posing and pretending? Now, I am not talking about being guiltless or sinless or faultless. If you're any three of those things, you can please leave right now because only Jesus are those things. So I'm not talking about being guiltless. I'm not talking about being sinless. I'm not talking about being faultless. I'm talking about being open and honest and unpretentious. I'm talking about walking humbly before God and keeping short accounts with God and living close to the cross and living with an attitude of repentance and just keeping short accounts with God and my wife and everyone else that I have the privilege of living with, even though it may not be that they so much have the privilege of living with me. Jesus warned us about Pharisees who appear to be something that they're not. And if we're not careful, that's what Facebook is. And if we're not careful, that's what Instagram is. And if we're not careful, that's what Twitter is. And about eight other things that I don't even know about. Because that's the old guy stuff there. All of that. TikTok. Jesus actually said about Pharisees who look good. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a Pharisee? Look how they dress. Look where they go. Look, look who they eat with. Look what they eat. Jesus said about them... He said, you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. Oh, have you ever been to a beautiful manicured place where there's tombs and manicured gardens and flowers? He said, that's what you're like. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. This is what he was saying to the Pharisees, which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. I was looking up quotes this week on authenticity. And I came across this woman named Shannon Alder. And I read this quote, and I've probably read this quote now more than a... Just, I've read this quote over and over again. I had to stop, pause, read it. I wrote it down, put it in my notes. And I've gone back over this quote all week. And she said this. One of the most important things you can do on this earth is to let people know they're not alone. And that's what vulnerability does. If your father was in prison for armed robbery, you're not alone. 
if your mother was an alcoholic and if you ever went to school with a black eye because of it, you're not alone. If you've ever struggled with depression, you're not alone. If you've had panic attacks, you're not alone. If your firstborn son has rejected God, you're not alone. If you've had to battle insecurity and doubt and lust and anger and fear, you're not alone. I wish that none of these things were true about me, but all of these things are true about me. But I'm not going to help anybody by pretending and posing and trying to put forth an image that's impossible to actually be or for anyone to even aspire to. I want to read her quote again. One of the most important things you can do on this earth is to let people know they are not alone. We're in this together. His grace has brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home together. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit. The beautiful Holy Spirit. We sang about him today. We, we love him. We've welcomed him here. Best friend this church has ever had. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And as a church family, I want you to know it's always in my heart that we put on just the absolute best worship experience that we can put on. And today was just exemplary. It was just wonderful. We must prepare. We must plan. We must practice and do things with as much excellence as we can. And anytime we have struggles online and all of a sudden the sound goes out or the internet drops, I just want to pull all my gray hair out of my head, you know. We just want to be as excellent as we can be. But when it is all said and done, we need the Holy Spirit. We need his presence. We need his power. We need his peace. Oh, we need him. You know, my goal is that every single time we gather together, that yes, you'll have a wonderful worship experience, that you'll have fun fellowship with each other, that maybe you'll have a wonderful experience in God's word, but more than anything, my prayer is that every time we gather together, each and every one of you will encounter the Holy Spirit. And we can't replace that encounter by being cool and slick and whatever else we might want to be. We just can never replace the Holy Spirit And it's sometimes almost like, you know, we want to be more trendy. And so maybe the Holy Spirit isn't quite as, maybe he's a little old school. You know, maybe he's a little old fashioned. Maybe we need to be less Pentecostal. And that temptation can come, maybe not to you, but it certainly can come to me. And I repent of ever having that thought and attitude because it's the Holy Spirit who brought us here. It's the Holy Spirit who got us here. It's the Holy Spirit that we owe everything to. Jesus said in Luke 24 and verse 49, I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. Stay until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Stay until the Holy Spirit fills you with power from heaven. To do his work on earth, we must have his power from heaven. We can't do his work on earth without his power from heaven. 
the Holy Spirit. We need him. We need his anointing and we need his enabling. And I could try to preach the house down and we've got some of the finest singers and musicians, but I'm telling you right now, all the singing and all the preaching in the world cannot convict and convert a human heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Corey Tin Boom, I love her. Corey Tin Boom said, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. No wonder pastors and connect leaders and, and uh, you know, are, get burnt out because there's nothing more tedious than working for God in our strength. He says, trying to do the Lord's work in your own, she said, I'm sorry, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But, she said, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the ministry of Jesus will flow out of you. I love what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, we don't work for the Holy Spirit. We work with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a thought? Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing? 2 Corinthians 6.1, we then, as workers together with him, with him, plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The Holy Spirit, we work with him. And I don't care if the world or the church world doesn't think he's cool anymore. I'm not going anywhere without him. We are not going anywhere without him. We need him. We need him. The old country song says, you dance with the one who brung you. Well, what does that mean? That means when you go to the dance with somebody, you don't switch partners and go home with someone else. And it's the Holy Spirit that brung us. Pardon the old country English. It's the Holy Spirit that brung us. And you dance with the one who brung you. He's the one that got us here. He's the one that's kept us here. And he's the one that's going to take us forward. And finally... I'm talking about the five hills that we just, for us, these are immovables. For us, we, we can, you don't die on every hill. There's some hills, you know, some people believe in predestination. Some people believe in Calvinism. Some pe- you know what? I'm not going to die on that hill. Uh, there's room for people to believe what they want to believe. There's some people that believe in a, in a rapture that will happen at this point. There's some people that believe in a rapture that will happen at that point. You know what? I'm not going to die on that. And I'll tell you something else. I'm not going to die on my personal opinion about COVID. That's not a hill I'm dying on. So there's, there's, you don't die on every hill. Some hills you just talk and have a meal and, you know, maybe go different ways, but still love each other and stay close and pray for each other. And if you need me, I'm there for you. And, and I believe you'd be there for me if I need you. We don't die on every hill. But there's some hills that we're just not. Moving off of. Could I have our team come, please? Prayer, the word, authenticity, the Holy Spirit. And finally, our mission. And of course, we just had our missions conference. But our mission, this is our mandate. This is why, this is why we exist. The mission of our church is to win the lost and make disciples. To win the lost and make disciples. Imaginations Church. We have this as our mission statement. That we exist to turn non-Christians into totally committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we didn't choose the mission. We just chose to obey it. We didn't choose the mission. We have just chose to totally commit ourselves to it. To win the lost and make disciples. Jesus said, Matthew 28 and verse 18, at the end of his thousand day ministry with those disciples... Jesus said, 
risen from the dead, Jesus said, after he'd breathed on them and they'd received the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, just before he ascended from the Mount of Olives up to heaven, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How many believe that? Then what are you worried about? All authority, he said, has been given to me on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. So because of that, don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Because of that, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority has been given to him. The message says it this way. Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. Listen to this. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. That's what I'm talking about. He commanded me to commission you. And that's the work that we are called to, to win the lost and make disciples. I know there's wars and I know there's rumors of wars. I know there's injustice. I know there's conspiracies. I know all of that stuff. But for the church of Jesus Christ, the greatest thing we can do on this planet is to win the lost and make disciples. Because we just, go, we just keep winning the lost and making disciples. How do you change a nation? By changing a president? Uh, not so much. You want to know how you change a nation? By winning the lost and making disciples. You just get enough neighborhoods won. You just get enough little communities won. We just win the lot. And you know what? The devil has not been able to stop that strategy for 2,000 years. And we should not be distracted into thinking that our main goal in life is something else. Win the lost. We go fearless, courageous culture. We win the lost and we make disciples. We pray boldness, Lord. We pray for boldness. That we might win the lost and make disciples. And the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that started 2,000 years ago. And that mustard seed that started 2,000 years ago, right under the shadow of the Roman Empire, is growing and flourishing. Today, over 2 billion people would look you in the eye right now and say that they believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We just keep winning the lost and making disciples. You want to do spiritual warfare? Win the lost and make disciples. That's the greatest spiritual warfare you will ever do. That's what advances the kingdom of God. Whew, I feel a preach coming on me. Am I smiling enough? Carol said sometimes, you don't smile enough when you preach. She said, you look mad. I said, I'm not mad. Just passionate. Let's stand together. Prayer. The word of God. Authenticity. The Holy Spirit. The mission. These are the hills that we die on. Heavenly Father, I ask you to breathe on this word. I believe this word is from your heart. And Lord, I believe this is coming out of my mouth, but I believe that you're breathing on it. And I ask you, Lord, to lay hold of us as a church, fresh and new. Lord, we've all been through so much, but may we just come through it and keep coming through it in Jesus' name. And may we be bold and brazen and brave. May courage rise up. And may we know that there are things in life greater than life, more precious than life. 
And that, Father, we would not be those that flee, but we would be those that stand, that we would stand our ground, and that we would not be intimidated, that we would not be moved, that we would not be manipulated, that we would be the church of Jesus Christ, bold and brave and beautiful and strong. Yes, kind and gracious and loving in every way, but unmovable in the name of the Lord, unmovable in the name of the Lord. Let something fresh come upon us, Lord, as a church family. Let something fresh happen right now in someone's living room that's watching this, Lord, or, or someone's car that's listening to this on a podcast. And right here in this room, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, welcome. Holy Spirit, I pray for an encounter with the Holy Spirit for every single person in this house today in the name of the Lord Jesus.